Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is Jackie. I am the pastor intern here. That is not the reason why I'm introducing, um, mainly because Jonathan is the reason why I am here at all. Um, he is the um, pastor, no, he is the res- church planting resident at Houston Chinese Church, a church that you sometimes might have heard me mentioning in our uh, Prayer of the People, um, which is the church that I came from and stayed for five years. Um, he introduced me to Taylor because he realized I have this 2% difference from Houston Chinese Church, which makes me a Presbyterian. Um, and also, uh, he knows that I'm in seminary and um, need more opportunity to serve God um, in different contexts. So um, every time I talk to him, I learn more about God, honestly. And we are excited to have him teach us more on Genesis. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead And said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver. 
according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Advent, it's a great privilege to, to be here with you all. I am extremely grateful for my friendship with your pastor, um, Pastor Taylor. Uh, we met through the Houston Church Planting Network. Um, I am not a pastor yet. I currently serve as a church planting resident with Houston Chinese Church. Um, that's, yeah, that's how Jackie and Carmen, I got, we got to know. I'm actively working with a team to, to start a new church called Ethnos Church out in the neighborhoods uh, surrounding the Energy Corridor, so out in West Houston. So um, I'm excited to be here at a church plant like, like this with you all, just to kind of see further what things could be like for our team. We're a team of 16 adults right now with a bunch of kids. And, you know, it's by the grace of God, because church planting is hard, right? It's by the grace of God that new churches like Advent have been and are continuing to be started all around the city, all around the world for the glory of God and uh, to advance the kingdom of Jesus. So this is exciting work. Amen? Amen. That being said, let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that as I um, have the opportunity to, to preach your word this morning, that you would be honored and that your spirit would be present and at work to encourage, console, challenge my brothers and sisters here at Advent. We pray that you would strengthen us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to take you back to 1988. It's December on a rainy day. My family and I are on the highway, uh, on the way to the airport here in Houston. I'm two years old. I'm sitting up in the front with my parents, my sisters in the back. Her name's Carol, 14 years old. Several cars, several vehicles ahead of my, our car was a truck with a refrigerator that fell off all of a sudden, un, 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 unexpectedly. And so on the highway with the refrigerator on the road, these cars start backing up, backing up, backing up. The chain reaction starts happening. My dad stops in time. But my, the car behind us was not a, actually a car. It was an 18-wheeler couldn't stop in time, rams us right in the back. And when things like that happen, if you've ever been in an accident with a rear collision, doors in the back can get jammed and you can get, you can get trapped in, right? The doors could get jammed, which they did. But the more tragic thing that happened that day was the car set on fire. And so while my parents and I were able to escape, my sister, who was trapped in the back, wasn't, wasn't able to escape in time. And so she died in that fire on that day in 1988. So when tragedies like this happen in a family at such a young age, it's, it's, it can shape you in, in ways that are hard to quantify. It can, it can really affect your life 
in, in unexpected ways. You know, death, it's such an uncomfortable topic these days and never has been a comfortable topic. You hear on the news these days, wars and rumors of wars, and you think about the Middle East and the things that have been happening for a long time between Russia and Ukraine, and you just you can't help but think about the reality of death. And some of you, for, for some of you, the reality of death hits even closer to home. You might have just... Um, recently been diagnosed with a a terminal illness. Maybe someone you love has just gotten struck with a diagnosis of cancer. And you're having to deal with doctor's visits and appointments and trying to figure out uh, what's the right treatment for this illness and this disease and how long does this person have left to live? Death is not uh, not a comfortable topic to think about, but it hits a lot of us closer to home than we'd like. And so today, um, that's, that's what I want to spend our time thinking about. And the question I have for us is, how should we face the reality of death, either for ourselves or for the, our loved ones down the line, when it's just such an uncomfortable topic to begin with? I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 23. I know you guys are working through Genesis, but a little earlier on in the book. And so what I want to do is kind of bring you up to the future of Gen- in Genesis, uh, take you guys a little bit further to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 23. Um, I'm sure you guys will understand uh, and know this, know this story of um, Abraham and Sarah, a well-known couple in the Bible. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we find ourselves at a milestone in the life of a man named Abraham, where he's confronted with the reality of death, where it hits, where it hurts the most. It's the death of his wife, Sarah, the love of his life. And so, again, I want to ask the question, as we look at Genesis chapter 23, how should we deal with the reality of death, either for ourselves or for our loved ones down the line, when it's just such an uncomfortable topic to begin with? And I see two things in this passage I want to point out that I hope to help answer this question as we think through it together. The first is this. Entrust yourself to God who knows the number of your days. Look down at verse 1 with me. We'll park there for a little bit. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years These were the years of the life of Sarah. So it's been a long journey for both Abraham and Sarah. They've seen a lot over the years. Back in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram. He calls him to leave a country that he's known for a while and his people to a land he was to receive as an inheritance. Genesis 15, God promises that he's going to give Abram offspring as uncountable as the stars in heaven through his very own son. Genesis 16, Sarai, still infertile, uh, struggling with infertility, takes things into her own hands and has this genius plan to have her Egyptian servant um, have a son with her husband Abraham. A chapter later, we see God graciously promising Abraham that a son would be born to him through, her, through his own wife, a, very, a son of his own uh, flesh and blood, even though Sarah was nearing 90 years old. 
Sure enough, in Genesis 21, we find Sarah giving birth to Isaac, the child of promise, the child through whom God promises that uh, Sarah will become nations. Kings of people shall come from kings of people shall come from her. This is all part of the original promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation, God says to Abram, and I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's been a long journey for Abraham and Sarah. And now the time has come for one of them to die. And Sarah goes first. And Abraham has to undergo this pain of losing a wife who's traveled with him all these years through this journey of faith. You know, the Bible says that there's a time for everything, including a time to be born and a time to die. Sarah dies at the age of 127. What I see here is that God knows the number of our days. He knows the number of years that we'll live on this earth. The Bible says in Job 14.5 that man's days are determined and the number of his months is with God. And instead of letting this depress us, bring us down, I think there's something both helpful and humbling if we were to really embrace the fact that our days are numbered. Listen to Psalm 90. I'll just read it for you. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So listen to this. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's a kind of wisdom that comes when we take the time to dwell, to meditate, to linger on the fact that we won't always be around on earth, at least this present earth. Even if you've been walking many years in your journey of faith, there comes a time that God's appointed for your death. It was true for Sarah, and it'll be true for you and for me, unless Jesus, of course, comes first. And God calls us to allow this reality to shape the way we live for the better, aligned with the wisdom that comes from God himself. When I was a sophomore in college, um, there was a disciple who gave me two CDs. Some of you might not even know what CDs are anymore. Two CDs. And on these CDs were two separate messages from a pastor named John Piper. One of those CDs had a message entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. And Pastor John Piper, in this message, essentially says that not only do we not know how long we have left to live, but there are ways to live your life that lead you to either wasting it or not wasting it. He says this, quote, Your life is in God's hands. Your life hangs by a slender thread of sovereign grace. You belong to God. He made you. You exist for him. God made life. He knows what life is for, and he has the right to take it and a right to give it whenever he pleases. And he goes on to say, the unwasted life is a life that puts Christ on display as supremely valuable. 
And so God has used both the memory of my sister's death at an early age and this message from John Piper of not wasting your life to really dovetail in a way that has freed me to try to take risks in this life that I might not have otherwise. So here's what it's looked like for me to try to not waste my life. When I graduated from college, I was at Rice. Um, I entered medical school to become a doctor. And through the years, God just was working on my heart and had been working on my heart to the point that in the middle of residency, uh, this second year of residency, this was before my first son was born, I went through this period of just deep soul searching and came to the conclusion, I think God's wiring me more to primarily be a pastor. I was, I was knee deep into the medical world, about to apply to fellowship for endocrinology, and I had to tell my letter writers, I'm not going to fellowship anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. In 2015, when I graduated residency, I took a part-time job as a doctor. I started seminary on the side. didn't know exactly where this is all going to end up. I've been doing that all the way until last year and graduated finally. Went on staff at my church as a church planting resident. The Lord really just putting on my heart greater and greater desires to plant churches and to be part of the work of church planting. And it's just this way that the Lord, even though I had been on this path towards medicine, it, it, it really was more of walking in, in the path that God's really wiring me for and putting on my heart his plans and his purposes for my life. That's what it's looked like for me to not waste my life, at least for my, my own story. This is what it's looked like for me to allow the reality of death and the fact that my days are numbered to give me a heart of wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that to not waste your life, you've got to do exactly what I'm doing. Don't get me wrong. God has different plans and purposes for each of us. The question is, are you willing to die to yourself, to your own plans and your own purposes and your own dreams in order to take up the cross, take up your cross and follow Jesus no matter where he leads? That's the question. The late pastor and author Tim Keller once said that everyone knows they're going to die. But people really, in some ways, repress that knowledge and live as if they're never going to die. So the question is, what would it look like for you not to just repress the knowledge that you're going to die, but leverage that reality in order to live an unwasted life? That's the question. And I know this can all sound a little bit abstract to you, so I want to make this a little bit more practical. Jonathan Edwards, the well-known pastor and theologian from the 18th century, he put together a series of resolutions for himself that helped guide the way he lived. I want you to listen to resolution number 52, which Edwards wrote on July 8th, 1723, when he was just 19 years old. 19. Think of what, you're like, what you were like when you were 19, or some of you have to imagine that because it's still in the future. He wrote this, quote, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. I'm going to read that again. That's a mouthful. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. So I, I, want you to, I want you to think this thought experiment for, for a minute. 
I want you to think about what you might regret doing or not doing if you were to live to old age. Imagine sitting in a living room with your grandkids. Some of you don't have to imagine that. Sitting in your living room with your grandkids one day, and you're talking about your life. And one of your grandkids asks, Grandpa or Grandma, if you could live your life over again, what's something you would do differently? And I would, not, I would add not just what you do differently, but as a Christian, what would you wish you had done for the glory of God? And as you think about that, just think about that for a little bit. As you think about that, instead of having regret down the line, just do it. Just do it. Do the very things you think would bring God the most glory in every single season of your life. Because thinking like this can bring a lot of clarity to hard decisions you have to make. Because once you see the path forward that would bring God the most glory in that particular scenario or that particular situation or that decision you have to make, the only thing left to do is to pray for courage from the Lord himself to walk that path. So, how should we face the reality of death? First, entrust yourself to a God who knows the number of your days. Don't repress thinking about your own death. Leverage it. That's my point. Leverage it. Use the reality of death to shape the way you live and to help you live with greater and greater wisdom and intentionality. An intentional purpose of living an unwasted life devoted to Jesus Christ. And second, entrust yourself to a God who can use even death to fulfill his purposes. Look down at verse 2 with me. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, what's significant about Sarah dying in Hebron? Well, Hebron is a city also known by two other names, Mamre and Kiriath Arba. And, and back in Genesis 12, as Abram first passes through the land of Canaan, he comes to a place north of Hebron called Shechem, which is a place where God first promises to give Abram's offspring the land before him. And in Genesis 13, God promises land to Abram again after he settled in the land of Canaan, saying, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Soon after, we find Abram moving his tent and settling by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And it was at Hebron where God came in the form of men with two other men to visit Abraham and Sarah just outside their tent. This is the moment where both Abraham and Sarah hear from God's own mouth that Sarah is going to bear a son the following year. So Hebron's a place in the land of Canaan where Abraham and Sarah have lived a significant amount of their lives. So it makes sense that this is where Sarah breathes her last. And in the following section, the author of Genesis tells us what Abraham had to go through in order to get his wife a proper burial place. It all starts with Abraham approaching the Hittites, who were one of the people occupying the southern hill country and the Hebron area of Canaan at the time. I want you to look down at verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, 
I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites, in response, they answer warmly. Uh, They offer Abraham basically any tomb he'd like. So Abraham, with great formality and respect, if you kind of hear that out as I was reading, he asked for the cave of Machpelah, which is owned by a man named Ephron, son of Zohar. He's even willing to pay the full price for the cave so he can bury his wife properly. Ephron um, initially offers Abraham the cave and the field the cave is in for free. But Abraham insists on paying for that field. And so finally, a deal is made. For 400 shekels of silver, Abraham purchases this field from Ephraim the Hittite and is able to bury his wife properly in the cave he wanted. Look down at verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. What I want you to see is is that when Abraham makes this purchase, this is actually the first time he owns land in in the land of Canaan. That's the first time. And this is actually a really, really big deal. One commentator brings out the fact that this is really the beginning fulfillment of the land promise that God made to Abraham over and over and over again. In other words the death of Sarah becomes the very backdrop by which God continues to accomplish his purposes and to keep his promise of giving over the land of Canaan to Abraham. Why is that important? What I want you to see is that even though death was never a part of God's original plan for creation, no, it came into reality because of a tragic consequence of sin entering this world, God can use even death to accomplish the purposes and plans that he has in mind. Death does not have the final word. Now think about this with me. Like Sarah, whose death became the catalyst for Abraham purchasing land from the Hittites and the initial fulfillment of God's land promise to Abraham, there would one day come a descendant of Sarah whose death would lead to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Like Sarah, whose death happened only after she gave birth to a child of promise, a child who in turn would lead to descendants as many as the stars in heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, the child of promise, whose name we now know as Jesus in his death on a blood-stained cross, fulfilled God's promises long ago through prophecies of a man who would one day be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who like a lamb that is led to the slaughter would pour out his soul to death in order to bear the sins of many. But unlike Sarah, who was buried in a cave and whose body remained lifeless, her long-awaited descendant, whose body too was placed in a tomb cut out of the rock, didn't stay dead for long. No, he defeated death. And now he lives to offer the promise of eternal life to the world. So now, knowing all this, how should we face 
the reality of death. Simply put, we should see death as merely another milestone in our journey of faith. We should see death as just a milestone in our journey of faith. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, we Christians have been promised by Jesus himself that faith in him means that death won't have the final word for any of us. Any of us. No, like with the Apostle Paul, to die and to leave our bodies is to immediately be ushered into the presence of Jesus. Listen to his words found in Philippians 4, uh, chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. We Christians have a hope that no one else on earth has. Because when facing death, even in our final moments, we have hope that Jesus will fulfill his promise to us. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Many of you might already be aware of this, but um, the well-known author and pastor Tim Keller passed away earlier this year. He planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in 1989, and God used him powerfully to preach the gospel, particularly uh, in explaining the Christian faith to secular intellectuals. Now, back in May of 2020, he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and he went through two whole years of chemotherapy. As of January of earlier this year, he was still undergoing an immunotherapy drug trial. Now, before getting diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, he actually was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. But thyroid cancer was treatable. It really wasn't until he was diagnosed with something incurable, untreatable, like stage four pancreatic cancer, that it finally hit him. He was really going to die. And I want you to listen to what he says about death and dying. Quote, Everything just changes when you actually realize time is limited and I'm mortal. There is some kind of denial that's there that just won't, will not go away until you actually have a doctor saying, you're going to die of this. And you could die of this within weeks. It all depends. In the hours just before his passing, Keller's son shared that his father prayed these words, quote, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. These are the words of a man who saw death as just another milestone in his journey of faith. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, Jesus says. Christian, and I ask this to myself as well, can you really say with the Apostle Paul that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? If you were to face death tonight, do you think you'd have it honestly in you to say, I'm ready to see Jesus? 
send me home. Tim Keller, in an interview he did earlier this year, said that he and his wife would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life that they had before the cancer. The kind of intimacy and closeness that Keller experienced with God as he approached his final days are probably what allowed him to feel the way he did about going home to be with Jesus. And I think if we're to learn anything from this, it's that you don't need a cancer diagnosis to get you to this point. I hope not. But it's that we need to seek all the more to cultivate our relationship and our intimacy with God right now. So that one way we could truly, one day we could truly say to live is Christ and to die is gain and mean it with all our hearts. So here's my call to action for you. I want you to write this down or type it into your phone. Every day this week, pray the words of Psalm 90 verse 14. As you start your day or as you begin your devotions, I want to read it to you. Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And as you do that, ask the Lord, pray to him and ask him and seek him for deeper levels of communion and joy and satisfaction in him to be satisfied in his presence more than anything else. Because listen, growing in our enjoyment of Christ now will only pave the way to letting death simply be the entryway to more enjoyment of Christ later. More Growing in our enjoyment of Christ now will only pave the way to allow death to be the entryway to more enjoyment of Christ later. Let me close by speaking to those of you here today who haven't yet crossed the line of faith. What I hope most for you to realize is is you can't presume you've got a lot of years to live. And just think about how my sister passed. She was 14. She'd just gotten into St. John's, ninth grade. Don't think, don't presume that you can put off thinking and figuring this out Things, figuring things out with God until later. Your life could be taken away in a freak accident tonight. And if you die apart from a relationship with Jesus, there's not going to be a second chance. And you know the trajectory, the underlying trajectory of every human being from the moment of birth on this earth is, is eternity in hell because of the, the, the way the Bible calls sin, which is an inner disposition of of rebellion against our God. And it shows up in the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. We are all held accountable, will be held accountable to God for everything we've done in this life. Not just from physically dying, but a spiritual and eternal death in hell. And the reason is because God remains and will always be a perfectly holy God. None of us can set the record straight, make ourselves right with God on our own. But that's the good news of Christianity. We don't have to get right with God on our own. Jesus was sent. He was fully God and man. He was sent on earth to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died. And on the bloodstained cross, he took the wrath of God that was aimed at you and me on himself. 
and he died that death that we should have died. on, On the third day, Jesus came back to life to show he has victory over sin and death. Friend, what it takes to become a Christian is not just to know this story, but to make that story your own. To turn away from your life of sin and to turn to Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. So I plead with you, if you haven't already, to pray today that Jesus would be Savior of your life, Savior from your sins. Pray today, don't put this off, that Jesus would be the Master, the King and Lord of your life. Don't put this off any longer because you have no idea whether tomorrow will even come for you. But know for sure that this decision you make today will mean a restored relationship with God, the God of this universe, and a deeper sense of joy and satisfaction in this life and the life to come that you have ever experienced. Jesus says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's his promise to you. So believe it. Believe it. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's not easy to think about death, especially our own death. Lord, after all has been said today, I ask that you give all of us a heart of wisdom as you teach us to number our days. Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days, that we may find our deepest sense of joy and satisfaction and gladness in you. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.